You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Today we're going to be reading from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. If you could, feel free to follow along on the screens and your Bibles if you have those. Starting at verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalt ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can now have a seat and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Thanks, Zach. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village, and it's a pleasure to close out Zephaniah uh, with you all today. Um, man, Michael's gotten three weeks of like, uh, y'all stink, you know, fire's coming. I get the good stuff, so uh, I just get to preach good news to you for the next 90 minutes. It's a joke. Um, <laughs> but is it a joke? We'll find out. Uh, join me in prayer. And God, we thank you for these people in this gathering, uh, Father, like Michael prayed for us in our huddle over in the corner earlier today, would you let us be worshipers today and not performers? Um, I ask that help and that grace for myself as I talk. Um, I ask that for those of us who are singing this morning, that we wouldn't be faking it till we make it, uh, but that we would genuinely see and behold you for who you are, that in the way that we relate to each other this morning, that we're not performing or putting on a show or a face, God, but that we would let ourselves be seen by one another and by you, 
Uh, and God, you would surprise us with your grace today. Uh, we need your help. Help all of us this morning. Uh, and it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. All right. Uh, so during our first year of marriage, uh, Kel and I, we lived in a little apartment uh, off of Cincinnati Dayton Road up in Westchester. I uh, had a lot of fun memories there. We, uh, we watched like all of Lost up to that point uh, when like streaming stuff was a new thing on NBC.com. You got to watch old episodes of stuff. Uh, and so we did that like way too late into the night on a little teeny tiny laptop. Uh, all kinds of stuff like that. There's just fun uh, that we got to do our first year of marriage. But but I also have some, like, not-so-fun memories uh, of our first year of marriage from our first, like, married fights uh, that we had. And, and there were a couple where I was a particular breed of jerk uh, in, in relating to her. And so one time, I don't even remember what we were fighting about. That was probably something stupid. Uh, but I remember getting, like, so heated that I, I grabbed my keys and I stormed out, uh, got in the car, and I just, like, drove away to cool off, which is never a good idea. Uh, not safe. Those of you who are learning to drive, uh, don't ever do that. Um, but we live, like, just a couple seconds from 75 uh, in our apartment. And so hopped on the highway and just drove just to try to chill out or cool off or whatever. And so I'm driving uh, for a couple minutes, and all of a sudden my phone uh, rings. It's probably like a Nokia brick or whatever at that point in time. But uh, saw my phone was ringing, looked at who it was, and it was... Uh, it was a guy named Henry. Uh, it was an older guy who um, I'd spent lots of time with in college. He did our premarital counseling. He, was, he and his wife were like one of those people that we could go to at any point in time with anything, uh, and, and they would help walk us through uh, that stuff together. And so I saw it was him calling, and I knew immediately why he was calling, because Kelly had called him to call me uh, to talk me down, tell me I'm being an idiot, uh, right, and to have me come home safely to talk through whatever it is that had kind of gotten me worked up so much in the first place. And so being the guy I was, picked up the phone, took a deep breath, and I sent him to voicemail. <laughs> and immediately, I felt this wave of like, oh no, <laughs> like, uh, I've done something wrong. Because I, I couldn't, I was avoiding like a come to Jesus talk in that moment, right? But like, was I just not going to ever talk to him again? Like, I had to call him back at some point, right? What was I going to say when I did have to call him back? It just, I, I was thinking I was making things better in the moment, but I was actually, like, making things worse, worse in the long run. Uh, and so for the next several hours, like, I was just dreading the fact that I was going to have to call Henry back. And he's not dumb. Like, he knew why I didn't answer the phone. Uh, I knew that he knew that I, all that, he, he knew what was going on. And so the next morning... Uh, we were actually, uh, I was waiting in the car, getting ready to, uh, to gather with the church, not this one, but a, a, our church prior to this, and I was sitting in the car just waiting for Kelly to come down, and I decided like, that, that I was then and there going to call Henry. I was going to suck it up, pick up the phone, call him back. And so I thought over kind of what I was going to say, uh, picked up the phone, took a, a deep breath, braced myself for impact, um, because I, I kind of knew that I deserved to be laid into uh, a bit, and so dialed. Uh, his number, it rang, and it rang, and I was like dreading that like, you know, click, and then him picking up the phone or whatever, and so after several rangs, heard the click, he uh, picked up, I was like imagining all the things that he might say to me, and, and finally, uh, what I heard on the other end of the phone was, I love you, Scotty. First words that came across the line, and just everything in me melted at that point. It was the last thing that I had expected to hear from him, but it was like the first and most important thing that I needed 
to hear, that, to know that I was, I was still loved in spite of what I had done, the jerk that I was. And so in that moment, I had been surprised by grace, uh, undeserved kindness, and, and the relief that I felt at those words that came through the other end of that phone call from that person after being that kind of a jerk, that was a, a sample or a taste of the same kind of relief that the gospel can bring to all of us this morning through Zephaniah's words at the end of this book, after exposing us uh, as the kind of selfish, unloving, idolatrous, unjust jerks that we can be uh, to each other and before the Lord, and yet we can still hear, I love you, from him today. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that like this book, Zephaniah, has just been like screaming bad news at us, uh, at God's people, at the nations that were around them at that time. Promises of judgment are all over the place. The dread that folks should be feeling at God's uh, coming back, showing up, is just like overwhelming. He was going to lay down the law and it was not going to be good. The, the good news, even the possibility of it, it's been like tucked in like corners of pages here and there, uh, but, but it was almost like God was storing up all of the good stuff for this last section. All of the hope and wonder at his mercy uh, and his grace. It's like he wanted to store it up here at the end of his book in order to catch our hearts off guard and leave us surprised by grace at the twist that we get to look forward to on the day of the Lord with, with hope. We get to look forward to that with hope and not with dread. And so our, our main idea this morning is this, that, that those surprised by God's grace will get to rejoice on the day of the Lord. And we're going to look at this, that God surprises his people by refining them, by rejoicing over them, and by restoring them. And so we'll hop into the first one this morning, that God surprises his people by refining them. So I know that parents, they can take on some like different roles with with their kids, in particular, some parents might have a, uh, a good cop, bad cop dynamic, right, uh, when it comes to discipline. Maybe one of them is just naturally more disciplinarian, and one of them is like the fun parent, uh, aka like the favorite parent and the least favorite spouse, right, if that's the case uh, in that moment. But uh, regardless of how maybe that, that does, doesn't play out, has, hasn't played out in your life, um, you've probably heard someone use the phrase, uh, just wait until your dad gets home, Right? Just wait until your dad gets home. And that's, that's not because dad has like presents and fun stuff, right? It's because dad's coming home to lay down the law, right? To, to correct you for whatever it is that you messed up, right, on that particular day. And, and this, this like just wait till your dad gets home moment, that's where we left off last week. Uh, the verse right before today's focal passage is this. It's, it's wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations to assemble the kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. That's where we left off last week. In other words, uh, dad's coming home, and he's going to lay down the law. Judgment is coming against the nations who had rejected him, just like it had come down against Israel, like the half of God's people who lived up north who had rejected him. And last week we saw that, uh, that God lumped in what's left of his people, the people of Judah that were to the south, with all of the other nations who also deserve judgment. And that's who Zephaniah is writing to. Because even though Judah was his people uh, and saw what God has done and heard what he was going to do, Judah did not take God's warnings 
seriously. They, they didn't repent. They acted like uh, he'd never actually confront them. Dad would never actually do that. That's how they were behaving. But just wait until your dad gets home, <laughs> is what Zephaniah said. And, and here's what that looks like. This is the first part of our focal passage this morning, verses 9 through 13. <clears throat> For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me for once. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." This pains out a little bit differently than maybe what we were led to believe was coming. This is a, a different kind of like just wait till your dad gets home moment. Um, you've all seen probably videos of like uh, military moms and dads coming home and surprising their kids, right? Like they're out of a ball game or they're at school or something like that. And the kids have been waiting for mom and dad to come home, but they, they weren't expecting them to come home anytime soon. And so when they see them, it's like, 100% like pure joy and, and they're crying and you're crying while well, you're watching the video. If you're not crying when you watch those things, you're dead inside, right? Those are the greatest videos ever. Uh, that's the kind of arrival that we're waiting for, that God's people is waiting for. That's the kind of waiting that we get to do and it's the kind of response that we get to have surprised by grace on the day that our heavenly dad comes home to lay down the law, but not lay it down against us, but to lay it down for us and even to lay it down in us along with his spirit, so that we might walk in his ways. That's what Zephaniah is talking about. Because this all-consuming fire of his that's going to burn away every wicked and unjust thing, it's, it's not just going to leave behind a pile of ashes. It's going to leave behind a purified people, a, a refined remnant. By removing from them their shame and their pride, it'll even remove the proud from among them, all that's in and around them that, that's given God any reason to rain down justice, God himself will take it all away. And whoever's left of this like war-torn, oppressed, depressed, divided group of people, he's going to give them rest and refuge and unity. And Zephaniah is telling them, just wait until your dad gets home. We see this fulfilled in part when we look back at Old Testament history. Judah was, was eventually brought low. They were humbled at the hands of their enemies, to put it lightly. The, the temple was destroyed. Uh, they were taken captive. They were dispersed across the nations. There was no one left to really call on at all except the Lord. And yet, despite having lived in rebellion against him, God did not make them bear the full weight of their shame. Some remained. God let them go back home, let them work together to rebuild their lives in a, in a new way, and that hadn't happened yet at, at the writing of this, but it would. That, that would actually happen. But we can also see that what Zephaniah is describing hasn't been fulfilled in all of its fullness yet. Our speech, it's not pure. Not everybody is calling on the name of the Lord yet. Uh, the, the proud are still among us. Pride still exists within us. Injustice and lies and deceit, those things still exist, right? And so in a cosmic sense, we're still waiting for this day of the Lord to complete what God has promised. God's word of his, of his future work has been fulfilled in part, but it's not been fulfilled.
fulfilled and full yet. But no matter kind of what point in history you're looking back on this stuff through, uh, this much seems to be true, that, that when the day of the Lord comes, no one past or present or future escapes God's all-consuming fire unchanged, moved by it. And the few that remain are, are refined by it. And so a question for you today is, is this, which is more surprising to you? That some will be swept away or that some might be allowed to stay? Sometimes God needs us to be surprised by our sin, right? This is kind of what Zephaniah's work has been throughout this whole book. It's a wake-up call to the people of God who are asleep to their own waywardness. He needs them to take the fingers that they've been pointing at everybody else and turn them back around this way on them. The judgment that they're incurring is because of their own lack of judgment. He needs them to know that God's not going to ignore their sin forever. Uh, As Michael said in the first sermon in this series, God's patience is perfect but it's not forever, right? He's slow to anger, but he gets angry at some point, right? And so he'll remove all that remains in opposition to him, even those who might say that they're on his team. So are you aware of your own sins this morning as much as you're aware of everybody else's? Do you run to old comforts to tend to old wounds? Do you ignore warnings? Do you ignore wise counsel? This is the stuff that God wants to wake us up to this morning. You, you can't be surprised by grace if you can't even fathom your need for it. And that's the whole point. God, God just doesn't want us to be surprised by our sin. He wants us to be surprised by his grace. And not just when we first believe, but over and over and over again, we get to be surprised at the undeserved goodness of God towards us every time he wakes us up to our own sin and our eyes open to his forgiveness. But so many of us spend so much time and energy and effort just trying to defend ourselves or to make excuses or hide parts of our lives from each other and from him as if that's going to keep us somehow in his good graces. When in reality, we're just keeping ourselves from experiencing the good grace of God that can only needy and to the one who knows that they need grace but doesn't think that they actually deserve it. Zephaniah's call to Judah then and to us today is to own our stuff. Right, to own our sin, to let God call it what it, who you are, his son, his daughter, chosen by him, not because of you, not because you've earned your place or earned your keep, but by his free grace alone. And, and God doesn't just want us to be surprised by grace that lets us remain, that just kind of keeps us around, but grace that then refines us. This is the first thing that we see grace touch this morning in this passage, it's us. It's not our circumstances, not the world around us. The first thing that grace touches today is us. You will be changed, right? In the twinkling of an eye, when Jesus returns, you will be changed, right? Something that, that maybe some of you even think this morning is, is just impossible. The sin that you've been fighting and wrestling with forever, the addiction that no matter how healthy you are is still a thing that shapes every decision that you make, the trauma, the suffering that just colors every room that you're in or every relationship that you are a part of, God will remove every last ounce of it and you will be free. A pure and prideless product of God's good design and his power alone. He will never change, but the good news is that we can change and we will. 
right? No matter how impossible that seems on this side of God's return, we will be a, a well-rested, a safe, sinless, humble, lowly people, and we'll be his. We just have to wait for our dad to come home. This should blow us away, right? Because if anything has been sure in this series, it's that if, if it's none of us should remain, right? When the day of the Lord shows up, none of us should be able to stick around. We all deserve to be removed, and yet it wants us to look forward to that this morning. And so we need to know that we need it. And then we need to know where it comes from and what it looks like when grace is at work. And so three questions to leave us with on this point. First and foremost, how do we get grace? How do we get grace? How do we know if we'll be swept away or if we will be allowed to stay? And all it takes is trust and the only one who's ever deserved to make it through the fire unscathed, and that's Jesus. We need to trust that he has paid for your sin and that he has made you clean. No part of Jesus will be removed or refined. He is perfect and he is pure already, right? He is the only righteous one, fully God and fully man, who lived the life that we should live but never do, who, uh, who received the judgment that we deserve to receive on the cross, but we no longer have to, and who rose again body and soul to prove that sin and death and the enemy, they have no power over him. And when we trust that Jesus wasn't just a perfect example for us to follow, but a substitute, a substitute, a perfect substitute to take our place, man, then we get to stand in his righteousness. And, and on the day of the Lord, we're going to wear that righteousness like a coat of asbestos, right? When the fire comes, it's going to protect us. You and I will remain by grace alone that comes through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And while all of our sin will melt away, we will walk out of it refined. Those that God has declared righteous by faith in Christ, he will make righteous at Christ's return. Have you found your righteousness? God's reason to let you stay, have you found that in Jesus alone? That's the first question. Second one is this, what are you letting the Lord take away? So if your righteousness, uh, not just in the future, but right now, if it's in Christ, then how is he refining you today? What's he wanting to remove from you? Or what's he wanting to remove in you? What's he convicting you of? Or maybe an easier question is like, uh, what are you unwilling to let him take from you? Is there something that you're convinced that he's against that you're like clinging on to anyway and trying to make every excuse as to why you should hold on to that thing? We've just gone through three weeks of, of Zephaniah trying to wake us up from that very mindset, whether it's like Outright rebellion or just spiritual laziness or whatever, call it what you will, unrepentant sin will not end well for you. If Jesus is your righteousness, then let it go. You have nothing to lose that won't be burned up in the end anyway. And then thirdly, what kind of person are you becoming? Uh, What's being left behind while the Lord refines your heart, right? Are you becoming more humble and lowly in your speech, or in your service, or in your worship? Are you becoming increasingly more dependent on him as time goes on? Are you becoming uh, more comfortable with honesty, and confession, and standing by your convictions, even when it's risky? Are you resting more deeply? Are you walking in more security? If not, like, then what is more compelling to you than the news that, that dad's coming home? Or, and maybe this is uh, the question, is what kind of dad 
do you think God really is? Who we're becoming says a lot about who we worship. A.W. Tozer, uh, he was a, a pastor and an author. He wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It changes everything, and it certainly changes the way that you say, just wait till your dad comes home. Right? God hasn't made his homecoming a surprise, right? He hasn't made the coming judgment a surprise. He doesn't want to surprise you with that. He's warning us of that. And while he may surprise you with conviction over sin this morning, it's only because he wants to surprise you all the more with his grace. When you get to turn in honest confession and repentance and faith, knowing that you'll be only met with forgiveness, clothed in righteousness, and refined by his goodness. Those who are surprised by God's grace We'll get to rejoice on the day of the Lord. We get to rejoice in that today. All right? So that's point one. Point two this morning is that God surprises his people by rejoicing over them. This is a fun part of this passage. I love this. Uh, Verses 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Gosh, I love that. C.S. Lewis, uh, many of you probably know him, author, thinker, skeptic turned believer, uh, he wrote this, uh, almost interacting with Tozer's idea a little bit. He said, uh, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it's not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it's related to how he thinks of us. You might quibble with that, but he goes on. He says, it's, it's written that we shall stand before him, that, that we shall appear, shall be inspected. This is like day of the Lord stuff that he's almost talking about. The, the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God to please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote. In other words, The question of what comes to mind when you think of God is immensely important, and so is the question of what comes to God's mind when he thinks of you. What do you think God thinks of you? How do you think Judah would answer that question? (laughs) Right after hearing, like, Zephaniah used a lot of words to just rip into them about their sin and their idolatry, even after hearing that God would be, like, merciful and let some of them stick around, like, gee, guys, what, what do you think God thinks of us right now? You, know, you think he has, like, stick figure family on the back of his car, bumper sticker, honor roll student, bumper sticker, uh, my student can beat up your honor roll student. Like, you wouldn't even have that because they're about to get whooped up on, right? Like, how does the Lord really think about us right now, Judah? Like, what's off just tolerating them? 
he disappointed, regretting this whole salvation thing, even, even in light of grace, it would be really easy to think that he's just putting up with them because he has to, because he said that he would. For us this morning, what do you think God thinks of you? How does he feel about you when he sees you? You might picture him as an emotionally absent or unexpressive dad. Maybe a good dad. Maybe a great dad, right? Stable, providing, uh, fulfilling every duty and obligation, sacrifice, work hard, all that stuff. But, but you're never really sure like how he felt about you, right? Or, or maybe you don't have a picture of that dad. Maybe you have a, a picture of a dad that's like not emotionally absent, but is like present in the worst way. Unstable and, and all that stuff. And I don't know where that hits all of you, but I know as a son and as a dad, as a follower of Jesus, I know a question that a lot of us ask especially when it comes to what God thinks of us, is this. Am I a good kid or am I a bad kid? Right? For honest with ourselves. We ask ourselves this question, am I a good kid or a bad kid? And in the wisdom of the classic show, The West Wing, uh, I reject the premise of that question. Why? Because it ties God's affections to our obedience. It says that what we do determines how God thinks and feels about us. Think about it. Like that's a, that's a lot of power to claim for ourselves, to determine how God is going to think or feel on any given day. Like and it's, a, it's a weighty, a lot of weight to, to carry on our shoulders to wake up every day believing that the love of the Lord hangs in the balance of my behavior. Who can live under that, let alone sing aloud? Right? Shout, rejoice, exult with all your heart, not fear, not grow weary, to rejoice and to celebrate, to persist in freedom and not fear. These are the commands of our passage this morning. But who celebrates in, in the lukewarm glow of being tolerated, put up with, accepted, but, but not loved? And so some of us, especially in the church, we're busy asking, am I a good kid? Am I a bad kid? And what we're really wondering is, am I a loved kid? Am I delighted in? Does he delight in me? If, if we're honest, if we're honest, we all know that we're not all bad, right? And, and we know that we're not all good, right? We can figure that much out on our own, but am I loved? That's a question that we can't answer for ourselves. We need someone else to answer that for us. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that someone just doesn't say it, but the king of Israel, the Lord, he sings it, right? In one moment, the Lord kneels down to tell us that he knows the deeds by which you have all, and then in the same breath, he says that he's taking them away. He's granting mercy and pardon and letting you remain, and he doesn't just like get up and walk out of the room disappointed, frustrated, pitying you. He remains. He he stays in your midst, rejoicing over you with gladness, exulting over you with loud singing. Not, not quiet singing, not quiet singing, loud singing. Like the kind of singing that you guys do when you're in the car or in the shower when you think no one can hear you, right? That is the kind of singing that God does over us, unashamed, unrestricted belting when he sings about his people. He's not ashamed of his love for you. The question of am I a good kid or a bad kid is answered in Jesus. You're a righteous kid. 
clothed with Jesus' righteousness. And the question of, am I a loved kid, is also answered in Jesus. You are a loved kid, delighted in as much as God delights in his own purpose. You've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And as C.S. Lewis has already said, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or as a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Does that impossible thing surprise you this morning? Most of us would be blown away, if not like just honestly embarrassed if our parents burst into song over us, right, when they walked through the door. Uh, and this morning, we're reminded that this is exactly what God is going to do when he comes home, right? On the day of the Lord, you don't have to wonder what he's going to say because he's going to sing of his delight for you, just like he's doing right now in Christ. And so the challenge for us this morning in, in observing these commands of Zephaniah to sing aloud, to shout, to rejoice, exult with all of our heart, it's not to just do it to put on a happy face and to sing songs that you don't really believe or fake enthusiasm for church stuff that you don't really have. Like, that's not our work. I've drugged myself into these gatherings on Sunday before, limping uh, kind of from whatever the week has brought me, feeling anxious, feeling like my spiritual hands are weak. And I'm sure some of you have maybe seen me at times and seasons sit over there and, and not sing during the music. I've done that before. And you know why? I'm not feeling it. It's not because the band's not doing a good job. I'm just not feeling it. And the last thing I want to do is fake my worship. And so I sit. Not to check out, but to let my heart be quieted by his love. That's being sang about literally over me by all of you who have your own stuff going on and yet are continuing. It's not something that we, we muster up or manufacture inside of us. It's a response to the good news of what a mighty God has already done and spoken and sang over a sinner like me. And so when God commands us to rejoice in him, it's because he's already rejoicing over us. When he tells us to exalt with all our hearts, it's because he's already exalted over us. When he tells us to sing aloud, it's because he's already the one singing loudly, right? That's the work. That's the, not to fake it until we make it, but to remember God's rejoicing over us, his people, long before we ever rejoiced in him. And so if your hands are weary this morning, or if you're afraid, or if you're anxious, if you're not, if you're not sure what you'd rejoice in today, then you are not left out of Zephaniah's thoughts, or this sermon this morning, or what the Lord is thinking about today. These words were meant for you. For those who need to remember and be surprised by the fact that God rejoices over his. Lastly this morning, point three is this. God surprises his people by restoring them. It's chapter three, verses 18 through 20. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you'll no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I'll deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Uh, last year, 
celebrations, festivities, those things looked a little bit different, right? Because of COVID, some stuff was just canceled or stuff was changed in a way that like just wasn't the same. Even stuff that kind of went on as usual had a, just a different vibe to it. The community stuff, family stuff, church gatherings, all the things. There was a, a tangible sense of loss in a lot of ways. Something was missing, right? Think just the power to bring them back on our own. And in this last paragraph of Zephaniah, we see that there are folks, they're mourning over the loss of their festivals. They can't celebrate, not because of a pandemic, but because there's, there's not much to celebrate while the enemy's closing in and God's getting ready to leave. And, and when he comes back, it's not going to be pretty, right? So not much to really celebrate there. So God says that one day he is going to gather those who mourn. He's going to gather the outcast, the lame, all of his people, uh, as, as Peter Quill from Guardians of the Galaxy would say uh, if he was there, I look around at us and, and you know what I see? Losers. I mean like folks who have lost stuff. Homes, families, normal lives. That's the picture here. It's a gathering of losers. And the last time that God has said that he was going to gather folks together, it was to pour out his burning anger on them, right? But, but that's not what he's going to do with this group. He's going to gather them together to give them back what they have lost. Those who are mourning the loss of festivals, they won't have to suffer reproach. In other words, they won't have to be uh, embarrassed anymore. He's going to gather them together, right? Outcasts, he'll gather them not to highlight their shame in front of people, but, but to take it away and replace it with the praise of the people around them. The lame, who would never be able to, to survive in a post-apocalyptic world, right? He's going to save them. He's going to gather all of his people together, people who were financially, socially, politically losers, in order to restore what's rightfully theirs. Even if what's rightfully theirs was only theirs by grace and grace alone. God doesn't make that distinction. Right? Who they were and what they were promised wasn't ultimately dependent on their faithfulness, but it was dependent on his. And that same thing is true all the more for us today. What are you mourning the loss of? What, what's the enemy stolen from you? If it's something that God has promised for his people, or if it's someone that God himself has claimed as his own in Christ, then you can rest assured that it'll be restored to you in full on the day of the Lord when our heavenly dad comes back home. And the fact that you have lost it, that you don't have it right now, or that you don't have them, whoever that might be, isn't evidence of God's unfaithfulness that you've lost or that he has lost if you're here this morning. And you or, or the world would categorize yourself as a loser in any sense of the word, then you are in the right gathering of people today because that's who God gathers. And it's who he brings good news of his surprising grace to today and every day. There's this little arc that we see in this passage in Zephaniah, Day of the Lord stuff, Bible, just discipleship as a whole. And it goes like this, that there's some stuff in this world and in us that God's going to have to remove, right? Sin, idolatry behind. And to all that's left behind, he's going to give back whatever's missing. In other words, he's going to refine every part of this world, rejoice over it, and then restore it to its proper place. This is the work of God in creation and in his people. And the guarantee of his work is the word of God, spoken by Zephaniah and signed and sealed and delivered by Jesus. 
word made flesh in whom all of God's promises find their yes. And so we get to close out this series where we began. God giving us his word of a future work. It began with the line of uh, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, then a little genealogy, and then God's first words. His first words were this, uh, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That's how it starts, right? Not, hey, how you doing? Hope this finds you well, right, in the email. No, it doesn't start there at all, just destruction. Today has been praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. It's quite a swing, right? And that swing isn't just the shift that makes grace so surprising, but it's, it's the beginning and the end of God's arc of redemption, the removal of all that shouldn't be and the restoration of all that should. In the middle, the middle, that's where we are. That's where Zephaniah is. That's where Judah is. Thousands of years separate us from them, but, but the human condition and our need for grace, grace that's at work, but it's not done working yet. It means that we find ourselves in the same place as them, stuck in the middle of a world that needs redeeming, sinners in need of saving, orphans in need of loving, losers in need of restoring. And the only thing that we have to carry us through is the good news that God has given us, his word, that he's going to do a future work. Hear me, today there are voices that articulate sound theology, voices in the church they know a lot of Greek and a lot of Hebrew. They know, they're pastors, they're podcasters, bloggers, whatever. Some people that, some of you in this room probably revere, who would have you live as if God won't be true to his word? Not because they say that, right? Not because they say that, but because every day the loudest thing on their lips is another threat to the gospel, another enemy of God's people, another set of words or phrases or letters that should make you side-eye every single brother or sister in Christ. And I'll tell you, that stuff is anti-gospel. The constant drumbeat of the end is near from the church, about the church, is nothing more than just clickbait. It is tabloid attention-seeking to make you think that they have something significant to say when it's honestly just the same graceless, Christless message that's found in the rest of the world. And while they might be claiming to fight for the gospel, the takeaway is never good news. It's never good news. The, the impact is that they stir you all up to fear and division and suspicion, right? They make us think that the gospel's on the line, the church is in jeopardy, and it's up to you and me to stomp out the enemy, right? To reclaim what's ours. And so they, they misdirect our hope towards all of the wrong places, theological gatekeepers or celebrity pastors or politics or social movements and schisms and silos in the church, all that stuff. And we all stop being surprised by grace and start being terrified by and angry at and isolated from one another because we've really just stopped believing God himself when he said that he was the one who was the God of losers, who would deal with our oppressors, who would save us, who would restore our fortunes himself. Who are we becoming? Like Israel and Judah? who didn't believe God would restore them and so took their own short-sighted futures into their own hands and were willing to, to let idolatry reign in their hearts and injustice roll down from their hands because if we're not in control, then gosh, things are going our way, then, then what's gonna happen? Who's gonna help us? How are we gonna make it? Or are we becoming like Christ, humble and lowly, satisfied and secure, rested and righteous? It's tough to be a loser. 
Jesus knows. He lost more than we did. He gave up more than all of us. And yet he trusted that his work, work that God foreshadows in Zephaniah, that that would be enough. And he gained everything. And so like Christ, we get to trust those same words about his work to refine us, to let us know that God rejoices over us and to restore us. I watched a video on Thursday of a pastor preaching about the faithfulness of God from his front yard as he live streamed his house burning down. I'm not kidding. He starts talking here, turns around, just flames engulfing his house behind him. Fire trucks out. Or what, that's what he's doing. He talks for a few minutes and he's like, well, guys, I'll see you at church in a few minutes. This is a real life thing that happened. That's bonkers, right? That is wild. That's, that's the kind of crazy stuff that the gospel does when the world seems like it's on fire or when your house literally is, right? It is our joy and our song to be surprised by grace. If anyone tells you that something is a threat to the gospel, even if it's a legit concern on some level, please remind them that the gospel cannot be threatened, right? To, to tweak the words of, of Walter White, the gospel is not the one in danger. The gospel is the danger. Jesus is the one who knocks, right? right? It's, it's the all-consuming fire, the unstoppable grace. And we know that because if the gospel was gonna go under at any point in time, it would have been when God's nation was split in half and conquered, but God held them together while they were scattered. He gathered them back together, refined them, and even when they later tried and succeeded to kill God in the flesh, he came back from the dead and rose into glory. And so let us be a people who aren't only surprised by grace ourselves, but who can't help but surprise others, fellow believers in the church and our neighbors with the unstoppable grace of God. Our dad's coming home to lay down the law for us and in us. He's going to do it. And for those of us who are surprised by God's grace, we get to look forward to, to that day of the Lord. God gave his, his word of his future work to Zephaniah to do three things among, among his people. To warn them, to invite them, and to sustain them. All right? To warn them of what's to come apart from grace because of sin. To invite them to repent and receive his grace and to sustain them as they endure in a graceless world by surprising them again and again and again with grace. Every time that they can't believe that God is for them or when things get tough, when sin creeps in, when the enemy draws near and he preserved these words for us today for the exact same reason. He's warning us, ain't us, by surprising us with his grace. I didn't answer when Henry called the first time when I was in the car speeding down the highway, recklessly probably, and, and I already knew him. I sent him to voicemail, but I already I knew who he was and what he was like, and yet I, I still couldn't believe that I'd find grace on the other end of the line. And, and what I know now was that my refusal to take that call was a refusal to receive his grace. My fear of hearing his voice was a disbelief in his mercy and his love. And so if you're there today with the Lord, if you're convicted but you're scared, you're not sure what you're going to find if you give your life to him or confess your sin or ask for help, then I promise you that the Lord is far more gracious than any other person that I know. And we'd love to invite you along with everybody who's here with us this morning to respond to the surprising grace of God, however he might be stirring up in you today.
So, Ben, you guys can come on up. We'll have a couple ways for you guys to, to respond to what God might be stirring in you this morning. First is communion. Man, if, if you're a believer in Christ, then we would invite you to come up and partake of uh, the, the wafer and the juice. The wafer representing the, the body of Jesus that was broken for us, and the juice representing the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Sit, think, repent of your sin. Have a clean conscience as you come up, rejoicing in the fact that God meets you with grace today. If you want to pray with someone, uh, you're certainly welcome to stay in your seats, but I'll be there back against the wall. There'll be a couple people back there by that red tree who would love to pray with you and talk with you. You can sing with the band, whatever God might be stirring up you today. Just respond to that. I, I encourage you to do that. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your grace. As I prayed at the beginning, God, I pray that you would help us to not perform in this moment. Those of us who might be convicted or confronted with something that you might be challenging in some particular way, would you keep us from performing or pretending, but would you rather let us worship you? Let us come to you knowing that we're going to find grace on the other side, and we get to know that because you offered your son to us, that we might be forgiven and made clean. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the words of Zephaniah. I pray this has been a gift to our church. Refine us, let us rejoice in you, and let us find hope that you will one day restore all that we have lost. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.